0: Greetings and welcome to Episode 8 of the Old Patrol HQ Podcast. I'm your host, Gil Mazza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. Today, in honor of the 45th anniversary of women coming into the patrol, we will be talking with Acting Deputy of Law Enforcement Operations, Kathleen Scudder, out of Washington, D.C., from her humble beginnings as an agent, Class 322, out of the Nogala Station, she's carved out a truly remarkable career in the Border Patrol and beyond. She is a true game changer and a badass 5%er. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always. Good morning, ma'am, and welcome to the old patrol HQ podcast. Good morning. I hope you're having a great uh, 4th of July weekend and staying safe. It is a beautiful day. Good. So I would like to start out by talking to you about how you first got started in, in the patrol. Okay. Um, I
1: was going to college up in upstate New York at a State University of New York school
0: called Brockport. Mm-hmm.
1: And they had a job fair. So I've always wanted to be, I had always wanted to be in law enforcement, um, especially towards the end of my high school years and then going into college. So obviously I was going to school for a criminal justice degree, and it was my senior year. And, of course, everyone's dream, I think, uh, when they want to get into law enforcement is to be in the FBI or the DEA or, you know, one of those uh, well-known three-letter agencies. So I went to this uh, job fair specifically for criminal justice and DEA was there and FBI was there and there was this agency called the Border Patrol and I'm like who are you guys? I've never heard of them (laughs) Uh, and I remember it was a a female recruiter uh, and a male recruiter Um, and obviously you know my attention was drawn to the uh, outdoors aspect of it and then uh, I really wanted to get out of New York as I graduated college and moved along um, and they said two things to me. They said federal, federal law enforcement agent, mm-hmm. and Arizona. And I said, where do I sign up? Ah. <laughs> and the rest is history.
0: <laughs> nice, and uh, once um, you uh, got in and you uh, went to the, where did you go to the academy at uh, Glenco? No, we went
1: to South Carolina. That's when the uh, facility, they'd open up in South Carolina, because I came in in 96. And there was a huge hiring push. Mm-hmm. And Artesia couldn't handle all the borbill classes that were going through during that time. So uh, they'd open up South Carolina. So when we got there, though, we didn't have uh, transportation. They barely had a food contract. Um, everything, was, I remember we had law classes and what you, it was on an old Navy base. And the law classes were in the building that they used to train the naval officer, the soldier, or I don't even know what they're called in the Navy. I apologize to anyone who was in the Navy, for um, submarines. So there was no windows. Oh. <laughs> it was like a brick, just
0: basement everywhere. Oh, man. Well, I was in the 313, and so uh, they must have just, uh, just started after I graduated because I graduated in December of 96. Uh, out of Glencoe, Georgia, so they must have been right afterwards that they started in yeah. South Carolina, yeah.
1: I think the 315 was the first class at
0: Charleston. Ah, okay. Okay, wow. And um, what was the uh, academy experience like for you?
1: Uh, it was tough for me. Um, I was a little bit out of shape. I just graduated college. Aren't we all imagine. <laughs> the college lifestyle. Uh, I was not training ahead of this, and uh, so I remember getting off the bus at the academy, and I'm sure everybody remembers that experience. Mm-hmm. And there is this big, fit, uh, black gentleman standing there in his smoky bear hat, and he's got like thick, you know, the quadriceps, and yeah. and, uh, and I'm like, oh my god, what did I sign up for? I thought I was getting off the bus for the army, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, what am I doing?" And they're yelling at you, you know.
0: And, yeah, I remember. But, uh,
1: he ended up. Vic Howard was his name, and he ended up being a very nice man. Uh, and I worked with him years later. We were both A chiefs together in Rio Grande Valley. So that's weird how how uh, your careers progress
0: yeah it's very interesting that um those guys that you idolize as instructors at the academy later on you end up working with them side by side in the field somehow when they come back because you don't know that you don't understand that whole process right they're on detail there they're doing their thing and then they're going back to the back to the field afterwards and then you encounter them out there and you know like my when i first saw my pt instructor was brent johnson and when i first saw him back in the real world i still fell down and started giving doing push-ups when i you know i just automatically
1: yeah, one of my PT instructors came to, for a detail to Nogales a couple years. I think I would probably had four or five years in at this time. And mm-hmm. I was sent to the airport to pick up the details. He got off the plane, and I'm like, oh no. And uh, he's like, why don't you get my bags? I'm like, I'm not a trainee anymore, and you're a pretty strong uh, man. You can carry your own bags.
0: Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find anything at the, uh, uh, you know, obviously we all, I showed up there, you know, 25 pounds overweight and uh, not in in any kind of shape at all, you know uh, Just determined to make sure that I wasn't gonna fail, you know, because I didn't want to go back if I failed. but um, Any particular things you found uh, any particular difficulties there while you were going through the Academy that you had to overcome?
1: So PT was probably a little difficult for me at first um, and, And I never was like the fastest or the strongest, but I improved and at the end of the, at the end of the training, you know, they recognized that and they said, you know, uh, I never gave up and, you know, I kept on going. I never yeah. quit a run or any of that kind of stuff. And no matter what, I, and that, that's just kind of something that I learned growing up from my mom. You just don't quit. You know, there's no can't. Yes. You just find a way and you get through it. But um, law at first was a little difficult and I think it's because we were just flying through it. Yes. Uh for whatever reason, Spanish came pretty easy to me. Uh, I did start out in Group (laughs) 6, which was the (laughs) lowest group, but Uh, then I advanced all the way to Group 5 at the midterm, (laughs) (laughs) and then I did pretty well, though. I I, I scored in the upper 90s on all my Spanish exams, so I was proud of myself for that, but PT was probably the hardest part for me, and then just... I don't know. Being away from home, mm-hmm. where I couldn't go home on the weekends. Like at college, I could go home on the weekend if I wanted to. Yes. And then uh, there was only three females in my class, um, and we all still remain uh, in touch. Believe it or not.
0: So you, you, everybody all the females in the class made it.
1: We did. Um, I am the only one left in the patrol, um, but we all made it through the academy, and, and you know, several years. they made personal choices uh, to leave the agency um based on their priorities at the time so
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh but yeah we all made it through the academy and uh we all did pretty well
0: that's interesting because uh, in, in the, the very first class when i was i had a little talk with uh, uh chris davis who was what like considered the very first female agent in the patrol in 75 there were six that that went through but only three actually graduated as well so that was uh it's an interesting number
1: back then and they they definitely didn't make you feel like uh you were special or you know they're like hey you know probably one of you is not going to make it or more <laughs> yeah
0: so they were they were pretty um they were pretty straightforward with you it was like you, you know there's not going to
1: be hard, yeah, yeah. it's a hard academy i mean yeah it and is and i've heard that ever since um coming in the border patrol academy has been historically one of the hardest law enforcement academies out there
0: yeah, and that's why early, even early back in the history of the patrol, uh, uh, other agencies were snatching up Border Patrol agents and offering them more money because of the initial training that they got and the in- initial experience in the field uh, through probation that made them so valuable to other agencies. Right. I remember talking to my nephew, who eventually did come into the Border Patrol, but you know, of course he wanted
1: to get in the FBI, um, like all of us younger kids think we want to, uh-huh. but... I said well do you want to go into a law enforcement agency and actually put hands on people like right away he's like yeah definitely i said then join the border patrol and then you can do whatever you do after that but um and and he did and and that's the thing i think even in police departments you maybe are not putting hands on people day one yeah like we are on the border patrol
0: yeah and that hasn't changed since the beginning almost everybody i speak to that i've talked to that i've interviewed in, in sessions you know from 70 eight on up have all said that they pretty much while they were at the academy uh or they actually were sent out into the field before they even went to an academy so that is something that's pretty unique to the patrol i think yeah i'm glad we don't do that anymore though <laughs> yeah that, yeah kind of especially now that in today's day and age you got to kind of know your way around because otherwise um the uh opportunity to get in some big trouble is uh even more so i think um, more readily available than, than it was back in the day Absolutely. So, who yeah. are some of your who uh, some of your classmates that are um, that are still running around the border patrol? Like, you, know, you can just name a few, just to you know.
1: Yeah, uh, a lot have graduated in the last year. Um, my classmate Jack Jeffries is a PIC in Tucson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at Casa Grande Station. Um, who else is left? I don't have a lot left that I that I really stay in touch with. A couple of years ago, we had a classmate who was killed in the line of duty, Alex Kerpnick. Uh huh. And that was in 1998. So two years ago, we had like a 20-year um, commemorative ceremony in Tucson, and a lot of us came and ta- came into town, and we kind of got together afterwards. But since then, yeah. a number of the people uh, who even came into town for that have retired. Um, we're getting to that age, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would never say that to your face. But, um, John
1: Roseboro was a classmate of mine uh-huh. he, he, he retired uh, But he's probably on this page um, Or on the
0: headquarters, The Old Patrol page uh-huh. Gosh, I wish I had my class picture in front of me Because I can name okay. almost everyone in my class still um, It was funny We were having a little competition At that 20 year Like who can name the
1: most people in the class And someone had brought the class picture with them And, and uh, I was pretty good I was pretty good at that yeah, I'm, do
0: you know? Uh, do you know Martin
1: Linares? Uh, yes. He was one of, He was my first Spanish instructor at
0: the academy. Yeah, uh, 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 Martin Linares is somewhat of a legend to us all, uh, and, and he ended up in, he is an alcohol as well. Right.
1: Yep. That's what made me think
0: of he's a he's a San Diego guy. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I love that guy. He's uh he, he's an amazing person, and uh, he's got just the right amount of quirkiness to him. Yeah, I right? like him. He's a good guy. Yes. So tell me about um, after you graduated the academy. What was your first duty station?
1: So Nogales, Arizona, was my first duty station.
0: And uh, how do, how were you received there? How did you know? Um, tell me about you getting there and and, and and you know what you first experienced and what you saw.
1: Yeah, so when we EOD, we all went to our stations uh, to meet the PICs and so on and so forth. And there were six of us from my class that were going to go to Nogales. And I remember, um, I think probably was a training officer was saying, so you know, one or two of you are probably not going to make it through the academy, but we all made it back. We all graduated the academy and EOD together, and the first day there, of course, your reputation at the academy, if there are instructors who are from the duty station to which you are going, mm-hmm. follows you. Yeah. Um, so... Thankfully, uh, most of I think all my instructors liked me, and, and they knew I was a hard worker, and I, I was trying, at least. Um, in particular, my firearms and driver instructors were uh, kind of those even older patrol than we are, uh, midnight guys that, you know, they kind of run uh, their own shifts to a certain degree, but they're all hard workers, and yes. if you can pass their muster, then you're good to go with everyone else. So somehow, I was in favor with those those guys. So when I got to the station, um, uh, my reputation immediately was, I guess, good. And then I just remember our first couple of days, they didn't really have much for us to do, so we were putting lockers together. Of course. <laughs> um, we were uh, moving from a very small station, like the number of agents in Nogales, before the 94-96 push was like 60. Um, and we, when we got there, there was probably... Getting
0: closer to 300, and we're moving into a new station at that time. Uh huh. Well, uh, interesting, you know, that, um, uh, you know, you speak about uh having those journeymen that used to run shifts, right? Because uh, and this is you know, uh, me, a uh, a uh, agent, uh, you know, out here on the ground, still not in management, speaking to you know, the dark side, uh, which is you, and yeah, uh, yeah right, because everybody that gets into management is in the dark side now, but right, uh. Course. I think that um, you know it's that senior journey journeyman agent, right? I think I, I think losing that losing that um, that step in in the patrol, I think, was a little detrimental to us because they're the ones that pass pass down the traditions, the history, all the bad habits, right? Along with their wealth of information. I remember that uh, a journeyman, you know, you had to, uh, we had to give our casework to a journeyman first. Before a soup even saw it, a soup will say, don't even bring it to me unless uh, you know uh, a journeyman agent uh, went through it. So who were some of your journeyman agents when you first got there?
1: So my very first journeyman was uh, a gentleman named Rich Cole. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's retired now. I think he's in Florida. We keep in touch every now and then. Um, and then my first FTO was Jason Heckler, who's also retired now. I think he lives in Tennessee or something. Um, I went through the... The gamut with journeymen, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I always remember one thing. One of our my Spanish instructors told us at the academy, Liz Briones, She said, "You're gonna have good journeymen and you're gonna have bad journeymen." but yes. She said, "You can learn from both," and I've held on to that my whole career, and uh, I still use it with in new trainees and new supervisors, even uh, you know, because you can have good leaders and bad leaders that we really don't want
0: to call leaders, but you can always learn something from both of them. Yeah. And I, and I'm, uh, I, I'm assuming because I think I feel the same way that, that, that's helped keep your, keep your sense of balance and focus in the border patrol and, uh, from, and, and, and from allowing a lot of things to really drag you down. Right.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's, there's been some tough times and you shake your head and walk away. And you, yeah. You know, you, how did that guy get to that position or yeah. that girl or whatever, yeah. you know, uh, it happens. It happens. I think in, in even in
0: companies and other organizations, you just are like, "Wow." Yes. So, tell me about the work over there, man. How did you? How did you find the work? How did you get your feet wet?
1: It was busy. Um, <laughs> we were catching groups from twenty-five to a hundred uh, every night. It was just go, go, go. Uh, it was California after they moved to Arizona. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, That was the time when the traffic was starting to shift. So I remember the biggest group I ever caught was like 79 people. And it was amazing. In the middle of a night on a midnight shift, the scope is calling out this group. And and the agent says, I I can't even count them anymore. They're going off both sides of my screen. Wow. So we find, you know, we track the group to where he hasn't seen them again for a while. I shine my flashlight on the side of this hill and it's just people. Faces, (laughs) Faces, <laughs> children, women, like, unbelievable. And we had to walk them out through a campground where people were camping. And I just remember thinking, oh, my goodness. And I'm carrying this little girl who had a fever on my back. Um, and some of the other guys are helping, you know, the, the women who aren't doing so well, and yes. some men for that matter. Um, it, our jobs very quickly turned from law enforcement to humanitarian care even today. Uh, um, but to back then even, you know, we just, we had a job to do and we were doing it. And certainly you see the, the worst of people uh, and the best of people during those times.
0: Yes. I tell you, you know, um, it, it, I almost never got over it in my entire career of the idea that you can be out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night in the darkness by yourself and encounter human beings in places where you can't even fathom they would be yeah how did they get there how did i get there <laughs> yeah right and that and, and and i never i you know i never got over the awe of that right the chase the tracking, yeah. the things like that. But the but that idea that, you know, you're going to be out there hiking these hills or whatever you're doing in in, in remote areas and there's going to be people out there that you're going to yeah. kind of like, wow. And you become, you become very adept at uh, sounds that shouldn't be normal uh-huh. or even just a flash of color uh, in
1: the brush. Yes. Uh, you know, things that, I mean, regular cops have it, tough but they a lot of them say i could never do what you guys do yes we walked down into a canyon where they're like yeah let's just build a perimeter and uh <laughs> you know we're and we're trudging down into the middle of it um I, it was fun though it was a lot of fun it, i was yes. young i had a lot of energy catching dope was amazing you know the pie you get from that and just a uh, sense of accomplishment um and no was seeing a lot of dope back then
0: yeah, and uh, you got the you got the trophy pictures to prove it. I have a couple.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah.
0: I, I, I like those. So, any any good stories or adventures or misadventures? I know that um, you know we talked about your status in the patrol right now. We're gonna discuss that a little later, but uh, anything that might not get you in, might not get you into big trouble at least. <laughs> um, I, I pretty much stayed on the straight and narrow for the most part.
1: Um. There was there was one uh, occasion. It was where I was working a midnight shift, and they would just throw bundles over the fence uh, along West International Street in mm-hmm. uh, in Nogales, right along the border. There, we had one of the, the old steel bollard fence
0: down there. Yeah,
1: or not bollard, the steel uh, the Vietnam. I forget what landing mat. Landing mat, yes. Landing mat fence, yeah. So they would just toss bundles over the front fence, and Nogales was one of the few places that even back in the nineties had some cameras. So the, cam- the camera people called it out, and uh, it was my area for the day, but it was, like, just getting to be light. So I haul butt down there, and uh, this car pulls out right in front of me, and I almost T-bone it. <clears throat> and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. They're trying to leave the area rather quickly. So uh, I get out of my vehicle. Uh, I'm by myself, of course, because that's kind of how we worked a lot of time back oh, then, yes. right? Oh, yes. And uh, um. I get in my vehicle, the driver and the passenger start to try to get out, so I draw down, on them, like, get back in the vehicle, um, I bring the driver around to the back, and uh, I'm like, can you open the trunk, so he opens it, and of course, there's, you know, several bundles in there, and then the passenger's starting to get out again, so I'm like, starting to get a little nervous, I got the driver in front of me, and uh, Mike Masciani, who is crazy, comes, <laughs> I mean, speeding down the dirt road, the skids to a stop in a Bronco, uh, grabs the the passenger and and, uh, puts him up against the vehicle, and and then uh, everything kind of went well from there on. But um, that's kind of one of those ones where you just, you're like, hmm, something's not right. It could just be anyone, right? Yes. You get that that spidey spidey sense going on. Um, And then there's just, I mean, a lot of them were calls out from the, the scope, and you just go out there. And the game back then was you jump, the meals, they
0: drop the dope, they run off, we seize the dope, right? Correct. Um, uh, it's a little bit different game, I guess,
1: in some areas now, and higher higher sort of uh, value drugs are being seized more often now because of the legalization, I think, of marijuana in a lot of states, but we still do catch quite a bit of marijuana along the border, as you know.
0: Yes, yes. Well, it occurs to me that we might have been in gallas at the same place at the same time because um, I got sent down there uh, early 2000. And on remember when they were sending us all on detail down there from San Diego? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what exact years those were. Um, you might have a better recollection. But I remember it was like 98 on okay yeah. okay yeah and i went there i went down uh I, I went down every chance i got every 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 opportunity to go to arizona because i'm from douglas arizona if you can believe that oh really
1: yes i did
0: not know that so i i, I, I went down there to yuma the ajo to tucson and and and, uh, and other places nogales uh, in particular and i remember being parked you know on an x um along the fence and watching footballs and or or, or yeah. so get our stuff get thrown literally from the other side into into backyards yeah,
1: and, uh, there was one, uh, uh, Escalada Drive was an area where they threw a lot of stuff, like the football size stuff, Yeah, and uh, I had a trainee, and we were, they kept throwing stuff over the fence, and we'd go down, and it wasn't, you know, they were just testing us out, so we went down, and uh, there was this car parked in front of a house that's really close to the border there, and we decided to lay in for it. Mm-hmm. So we lay in under the front of the car, which probably, in, in retrospect, was not the smartest thing to do um we hear the guy jump over the fence and uh you know the feet landing or whatever and then lo and behold he opens the truck of the car we're laying in under <laughs> and, <laughs> and puts you know the bundle in so we're like oh my god we gotta get out for this so we get out and we apprehend him and i'm like geez that was we should probably have known that was his load car but anyway
0: <laughs> yeah yeah now there was a there's a, a couple of pictures in particular where you're sitting on top of a bundle of dope um do you remember that story
1: uh, did my hair look really bad in that picture?
0: Well, um, I, not, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to
1: say. There's, there's one where I'm in plain clothes, and that one I was working the radio room that night. We kind of did like a two-week stint in the radio room and then processing and then back out in the field. And the one where I'm in plain clothes, I called out that load. So uh-huh. I was like, I'm getting a picture with this one. And then there's one where I look really, really bad, and I'm holding a small bundle in front of me and there's a bunch of bundles under me that I'm sitting on. Yes. My seizure was the small bundle. So uh, my journeyman, or my supervisor, it was a midnight shift, of course. He said, hey, can you go back out to this area? It was actually called off of Kathleen Drive, believe it or not. (laughs) Yes. In the morning, the guys got a dope load out there last night, and they don't think they got everything. So my partner and I went out there, and uh, we found that one little bundle.
0: (laughs) Well, what I see, let's see, I got a picture where there's a, it says 159 pounds, 5,898. And you're sitting on that one and you got, uh, you got these great uh, 1980s bangs going. Oh yeah, I still have those. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other ones, they look like they're in like, um, like grain sacks. And there's a bunch yeah, of so them.
1: grain sacks, probably was, uh, um, what the heck is that material? Gosh, dang it! I can't think of it. The, we, they, the bundles that they did
0: all they, a lot of times were either grain sacks or uh, that brown material But I can't think of the name. Of yeah, right I know. Now. I know exactly burlap. what you mean.
1: I'm sorry. Burlap.
0: Burlap. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. what they are, and that's a yeah. And it's a bunch of them. So you're in one of them. You're standing next to the bundles, and another one. You're sitting in the middle of this huge stack of yeah. bundles as well. The
1: one I Standing next to it, I think, is probably that vehicle load that I have talked about before off of West International. I uh-huh. pulled the bundles out of the vehicle.
0: Yeah. And so, um, so you, um, one of the things that's, uh, that that I find really fascinating and amazing about your career is uh you know that, that you didn't sit still in Ogalus, right? Uh, and we 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 discussed a little bit, right? Like a lot of female agents, they don't want to be differentiated, right? They don't, you know, they don't. They're, they're not like, okay, uh, we're, we're female agents, we're, we're male agents. No, they like they they want to be a border patrol agent. They, they just want to be called a PA. Right. And and so yeah. I I talked I you know I talked a little bit to you uh, when we had our previous conversation about the idea if if anything had gotten in the way uh, of you as a female in the patrol if you if there was obstacles that you in particular you had to overcome.
1: Um, I think if I really sat down and tried to think about it, that potentially I could come up with stuff, but. I mean, and there were, I'm not going to say there was never, ever uh, anything said to me or a situation that made me uncomfortable, because that would not be true. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to persevere and and rise above it and and move beyond and not focus on that. I think we understand that in any male-dominated career field, there's going to be people who don't think you should be there, don't want you there. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm here to do a job. I passed the same academy you did. I think uh, uh, the advice I give to younger female agents is that there is going to be a time where you have to face something like that, and you can set the parameters of how you will allow people to treat you. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not saying that people will abide by your parameters all the time.
0: Correct. Um,
1: but there are avenues to take to get around that. I've never felt the need to file an EEO. Um, uh, that's not to say I couldn't have. But I just handled the situation myself or um, I told my husband <laughs> or, yeah. um, you know, I just stayed away from that person or, or everybody has a reputation and I think people know that uh, more than they don't. And one thing I always felt kind of interesting or thought was interesting, I always find it very interesting to meet the male agent's spouses
0: mm-hmm.
1: because they will behave so differently sometimes. Uh, around their spouse then they behave at work
0: Oh, uh, yeah,
1: uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think maybe female ages too but uh, you know it's it's a it's been a boys club for 96 years right
0: yeah um,
1: yeah if you think about it um, it's it, it's not a job for everyone either it's certainly not a job for every female but it's not a job for every man either um, yeah. you know it's it's tough you've got to have Thick skin, there's, there's in any job where you're facing potential life threatening situations on a daily basis, you've just got to be tough. Uh, and that doesn't mean that girls have to be one of the guys. Right. Um, but you, you just got to go into it, I think, understanding, and I'm not diminishing certainly any experiences anyone has had. Of there course. has been some ugly stuff, right? Yes, yes. Um, but what I will say is that. Um, there's a lot more good than bad, I think, in the Border Patrol. And unfortunately, all we ever see in the headlines, um, more often than good, certainly are the bad things. Um, and we just have to focus on on that there's, that's maybe 10, 20%, right? Uh, and there's 80% of really awesome people that are out there doing a good job and performing the mission, um, and they're respectful of each other. Yep. But I never felt that any that being a female um, precluded me from anything in any way. I was told, however, when I promoted to first-line supervisor by another first-line supervisor who was a man, and previously my supervisor, that I was promoted because I was the best of the females, and they needed to promote a female. I was like, well, thanks for taking away um, my pride there. Yeah. <laughs> and my accomplishment. I appreciate you yeah. Um, whether that was true or not, I don't, it doesn't matter because I got in the position and I did the best I could do. And, and to this day, people thank me, um, for, you know, having been the supervisor I was to them or whatever. And and after I was promoted, I remember several people, you know, thank God they're finally promoting someone good. Um, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything like that, but
0: I just try to go home every day having done uh, the right thing. Well, I know I know personally that I've rejoiced when I've seen certain people promoted and uh, I suspect that um, your promotion was that uh, was, was as legitimate as anybody else's uh, but uh, even if even if the argument could be made, you made good. on 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 what happened with your promotion and uh you know you made good on that and that's evident from that point on even the people like i I, we worked uh uh, you know we we crossed paths in dc that's where we first met and uh ever since then you you i came back to el cajon you came you went to san diego sector we crossed paths there as well a little bit and uh i have heard nothing but amazing things and, and and good things from people when they when they talk to you about it and uh uh, that's why you're called the fierce five percent, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, and certainly I just I just try to do my best, and like I said, do the right thing. And I'm not really I don't ever have an agenda, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really had a goal of reaching a certain position. Um, I promoted to first line supervisor, or I put in for that job because I saw people around me getting promoted that I did not want to work for.
0: And that's what I was going to ask you. I said because I was going to ask you. You know, uh, to tell me about the very first promotion, and you've already started to do that. So you're telling me that uh, you just saw people that were getting promoted, and you thought to yourself, "Nah, you know what? I want to." I might as
1: well. I might as well give it a whirl. If that guy can get promoted, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's as good a motivation as any. And uh, and and how was that? You know, how was uh, you know, how did your how was your experience as a first line supervisor there?
1: It was pretty good. So Kevin Williams was my P.I.C. at the time. No, not Williams. Stevens. I'm sorry. Who ended up being the deputy chief of the Border Patrol mm-hmm. later on? Um, and I remember him calling me. I was at home with my daughter. I had just gotten back to work after having her. And he said, uh, "Are you are you ready for the the weight of the of the you know the insignia?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Yes, sir. I'm ready." And he said, "All right. Well, I want you to start. Even though you don't EOD, I want you to start wearing it. Uh, you know, when you come to work." the next time you work, I'm uh, 10 4, yes sir, wow. and uh, yeah, and so it was uh, certainly a learning experience, but uh, there was a lot of other, of the same individuals that I worked with um, on my unit at the time, we were kind of promoted together, so it was a nice group of us that already knew each other and got along and worked together, so we just, you know, we figured it out, I took the crap jobs, I did the schedules, I actually enjoyed it because I felt like I was fair, um, rotating people around and, and we had gone, we'd just gone to X's in Nogales at the time. Um, and people were not happy. Uh, so I was trying to be a little bit more, fa- I hated sitting on an X. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to do it five days a week, just, you know, ugh, people get, they lose their motivation altogether. Yeah. Um, so I tried to be fair and then, you know, whatever, whatever. Needed to be done on the unit and try to make things efficient and whatever and I had a really great group of supervisors as my part as my peers, too So I have no complaints. I, my FOS's were good um, Everybody was just Really busy back then so there was no time to really worry about complaining <laughs> too much. It, it's
0: you know, there's something to be said about that. That is true. I mean, I can't remember I mean, oh, let, let's face it PA's complain right from, oh, yeah. from one. That is, not exactly, in other words, that's something our junior men used to make sure that, you know, they passed on to us, right, is that, uh, you, you know, if, <laughs> if you're not complaining, you're not a PA, right, but you never really noticed anything, because uh, it was just, the, the vibe was, I mean, everything was quick moving, every day was a different day, every, everything was just constantly in flux, and and and, and you were just, before every, you were just in it, yeah. all the time, yeah. But uh, yeah, and then eventually when things slowed down, that's what I think we started like, oh, looking around and going, well, now what, you know, and uh, yeah. so I think we're, 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 you know, the devil finds work for idle hands, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> so you made first line supervisor in Nogales. And right. then And then what was what was the next uh, step in your career?
1: So I um, had a lot of personal things happen in the next couple of years. Uh, my mother passed away. Uh, my best friend passed away. I had a baby, uh, and I decided I wanted to go home. And they opened—they were opening the Rochester and Erie stations up on the northern border. So uh, my husband and I put in for. We both took first-line supervisors. He actually busted back from an FOS to a first-line supervisor, so we could, so I could go home. Mm-hmm. Um, we went up to Erie, Pennsylvania, and um, I did a couple different things as a supervisor up there. We only had. I think there were five of us at the station, and that included two supervisors and a PAIC <laughs> at the time. And we got some weird stuff, you know, a lot of um, the the local police were happy we were there. We did a lot of translation for them at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we caught some weird nationalities up there—Romanians, Bulgarians, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was really slow. And uh, so I started. Um, I got into recruiting. I did that for a year, maybe traveling quite a lot, which. Uh, it was a good experience, but uh, it was a lot of travel. I'd be gone for weeks at a time and my daughter was young, she was kindergarten age, mm-hmm. um, and then after the second winter we were there and there was still snow on the ground in June, I decided I didn't want to be in, up in the Northeast anymore. And also my husband was getting tapped on the shoulder uh, to come down to D.C. So. Um, he got an AT. Uh, I took an ops officer position, or work, they were desk officers back then. Yeah. Um, and came, and came to DC, um, and then shortly thereafter, I promoted to an assistant chief in DC, and uh, I did a couple different things up there as well.
0: Uh, very interesting. So then, uh, once you, you um were telling me, uh, you mentioned a, a, a story that you uh, a personal story you wanted to share in regards to suicide. Yeah. Tell us about so when I
1: was a sure. When I was a first line supervisor in Nogales, I had an employee who was really tight, um, super good guy, was always, you know, in the fray and, and out there and on the radio and obviously working hard. And then all of a sudden he just started kinda not not being available on the radio. You couldn't find him, he was hiding, um, you'd find him sleeping, um, or whatever. And so I decided as a young supervisor that I was going to handle this guy. Like, he was lazy, and I don't know what's going on with you, but you come here to do a job, and you don't need to be sleeping. And so I dinged him on his PWP. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of years later, maybe a year later, uh, I wasn't his supervisor anymore, but um, it was Christmas Eve, and my husband was his FOS, and he gets a call that this guy's brother has called the station, and he's at home, and he's, he's threatening to kill himself. Um, and he does it. He kills himself. Uh, He's got a family. Um, Had I taken the time, and I I always regret this, to talk to him and to find out what was going on, I always think maybe things could have been different. And maybe they couldn't have, but the, the, the advice I always give to young supervisors is to know your people. Because if you don't know your people, then you don't know when something's off or when something's changed. And if you don't talk to them, even if you notice that, then you don't know why and you can't help them. Uh, so I think that's the one. Every time I address a new supervisory class or something like that, I always, that's the one thing I really key on. And along with that, you know, comes the whole um You'll have good journaling, good leaders, bad leaders, whatever. I was a bad leader. Uh, that was a mistake on my part, uh, and I'll, I'll regret it probably. And I tell the story not because I want people to know that you can make mistakes and, and you can move on, but as long as it's not a mistake that you're going to regret. Uh, you know, we, have, we, we, we boast being a family and taking care of our people. We need to walk that walk.
0: Yes. Well, you know what? Um, uh, and, and I'm telling you not to not to justify or uh, explain away in any way, shape or form. But let's face it, the the culture back then, because uh, I don't know, you remember, I, I, I was uh, a chaplain, uh, the sector chaplain here in, in San Diego. And I've been I was in the very first uh, peer support class and uh, we didn't have those tools right and we were it was drilled into us from the beginning you know it was it was meeting the the expectations of the pwps it was meeting the expectations of the soups and the supervisors i don't think were ever given and in those days they weren't given tools to handle something like that right it was it no, was definitely not it was still old patrol mentality you didn't go to a eap you did not talk
1: to shrinks no. you know you know our, our and we're, we're, we're just barely coming to a point
0: now yes.
1: where, it's, where it's okay to talk about it. And that's 25 years later, 24 years later. yes. yes. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of our leadership in the agency that, that we're, we're starting to address the problem and not remain silent about it.
0: Agreed. And, and, and so it seems to me, uh, just listening to your story, that you had the instincts. You knew something was up, but did you really have the tools outside of you know, disciplining somebody or, or 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 counseling somebody in the you know in in their job performance. Outside of that, what tools did you have?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was mature enough uh, as an adult even to recognize what exactly was going
0: on. Mm-hmm. No. Um, but if those, I those things aren't, if you're not, um, if you're not made aware of those things, and you know, uh, I know that going to the peer support training opened my eyes and and my in, in my mind to a reality that I had no clue of in the Border Patrol, you know, because we all tried to, you know, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Right, and I think um, that, oh, oh, su- you sorry, that's my little oh, thing. Yeah, it, uh, get into the interview. <laughs> yeah,
1: he had to, he insists. Um, I think peer, you mentioned peer support. I don't know that first line supervisors get any kind of that training. <laughs> To recognize when I think we're doing better, we have the required training every year, right? Yes.
0: And so we're still, we're still, and I think we're still in the process with peer support and chaplaincy to actually um, inform and train our our supervisors and management on how to utilize us properly. Because I think the mentality is, well, um, you're basically dormant until an incident happens. And right. I don't think a lot of them realize uh, realize the idea that we could be a preventative measure as well as a reactive measure as well, and be out there kind of mitigating circumstances. And a lot of us do, right? So, so I before I was called to be a chaplain for the San Diego sector, I was still out there because I was a minister before. You know, I was a a, a, a a spiritual person before, and I was kind of out there anyway because I was one of the older guys. Yeah. You know, and,
1: and I has, think we need to promote compassionate leaders uh, with empathy and they're not just, you know, the hard nose we got a job to do don't bring your problems to work that that's ridiculous and absolutely impossible. Mhm.
0: This concludes part 1 of our interview with the acting deputy of law enforcement operations Kathleen Scudder. If you listen on Apple or Google Podcasts, please give us a short but raving review and five stars so we can climb up the corporate food chain. Now, go listen to part two. You don't want to miss it. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first,
1: honor always.